Hello and welcome to this episode of Thermonuclear Takes. This is the last in this little batch of episodes where we're covering some news stories that have shown up recently and that I thought would be good to talk about on the show in a more loose and less scripted manner. So this batch of updates is going to concern developments on the climate change front. So there are a few interesting stories here. In some of our earlier episodes about climate, particularly the newsy ones, we've talked extensively about how the emissions drop under the pandemic was not a huge deal by itself. In some of our earlier episodes about climate, particularly the newsy ones, we've talked extensively about how the emissions drop under the pandemic was not a huge deal by itself, because of course CO2 is a cumulative problem. So effectively that raw emissions drop bought us maybe another month of time to combat climate change. But we also discussed about how what would be relevant is if we saw large-scale societal changes following on from this. Maybe we'd see big stimulus bills that had a focus on green infrastructure, for example, or so that there would be a greener recovery and some economic activity would be diverted towards replacing this carbon-intensive infrastructure. Perhaps the collapse of industries that were both environmentally and economically unsustainable, like the shale gas industry in the US, could be a good thing for climate in the long term if managed as part of a just transition. If that was the case, then it might be that we might just start to be able to flatten the curve of emissions and we would start to see progress. And then, perhaps then, given that, 2019 could have marked the long-awaited peak in global CO2 emissions that we've been waiting for for so many years, and the start of our eventual decline in emissions altogether. And who knows, maybe those things will still happen. But there are some early signs now that the emissions are starting to rebound from their pandemic lows. This comes from a new article by Corinne Leclerc, Glenn Peters and others, and it's really a numbers update. So we now have final numbers that CO2 emissions declined by about 67% or 6 to 7% in 2020, owing to the effects of the COVID-19 pandemic. This was mostly due to transport, which saw a 15% decline, and aviation itself saw a 45% decline. But what's interesting is that actually even that nearly half cut in aviation only takes you back to where it was in 1999, which kind of gives you an idea of how much flying we all do now and how exponential growth can make these things very difficult uh, to manage. You know, that only takes you back to where we were 20 years ago. Another fascinating note from this report Due to lockdown and downturn, almost all areas saw a fall in emissions in 2020, but one didn't. And that is if you take SUVs separately. So even though everyone was driving less and dealing with a pandemic, the fact that more SUVs were sold meant that emissions from SUVs actually increased last year. So you know, these gas-guzzling status symbol monstrosities that almost all people who drive them really do not need at all are killing us. You know, they've got to go. The good news on the transport front, though, is that electric cars did finally account for a record-breaking 15% of sales across Europe. So we're starting to get to the stage where eventually there'll be a crossover and most new cars will be electric. But these SUVs, I mean, it, it, it's kind of crazy to think that with all the less amount of driving people had to do due to lockdowns in the pandemic, uh, the increased sales of SUVs, even during the midst of a terrible economic downturn, was still enough to mean that emissions from this sector increased. It's... Uh, it's quite dramatic how this is being driven, and essentially, I think voluntarily, I think it's it's hard to say that there are many people who need an SUV, and we know that the car companies focus very heavily on advertising these particular vehicles, because they're the ones with the biggest profit margins for them, so it's sort of a consumer-driven choice, mostly, to drive these types of cars, and therefore it's kind of a completely voluntary thing. Um, some sources of carbon emissions, you can say, are to a degree necessary because the alternatives haven't been rolled out yet. But I think this is a case of just where we're shooting ourselves in the foot, to be honest. But um, we are starting to see emissions grow again as the economy opens back up. 
So Glenn Peters, who we've talked about a lot, who is on Twitter at Peters Glenn and has done lots of analysis, most of which shows up there. He's expecting that this will be a partial rebound. He thinks that emissions won't go back up to where they were in 2019, in part because the economy won't grow. But we could see emissions increase by 3 to 4% again in the 2021. As the economy grows by 5 to 6% and reverses and recovers some of the losses it took last year, dragging emissions back up with it. This is disappointing, but it's not really totally unexpected. Uh, people who listen to our sort of Kaya-type decomposition episodes will know that economic growth typically carries with it emissions as well, because the overall amount of economic activity that's taking place is still quite heavily correlated with the total amount of carbon emissions that are taking place as well. It's still possible then that 2019 will eventually prove to be the peak in emissions, and data are still somewhat early, but we did see, for example, that emissions in December 2020 were higher than they were even in December 2019. The first lockdown in Wuhan did not occur until January 2020. So, you know, there's some troubling signs here that emissions could well grow again. I mean, they, they, December 2019 was not a peak in emissions for December. December 2020 overtook it. So it could happen on an annualised basis, depending on what we see over the next few months. This quote is from the International Energy Agency who did this report. They said, quote, The rebound in global carbon emissions towards the end of last year is a stark warning that not enough is being done to accelerate clean energy transitions worldwide. If governments don't move quickly with the right energy policies, this could put at risk the world's historic opportunity to make 2019 the definitive peak in global emissions. In March 2020, the IEA urged governments to put clean energy at the heart of their economic stimulus plans to ensure a sustainable recovery. But our numbers show we are returning to carbon-intensive business as usual. This year is pivotal for international climate action, and it began with high hopes, but these latest numbers are a sharp reminder of the immense challenge we face in rapidly transforming the global energy system. And that's from Dr. Fatih Birol, who is the executive director of the IEA. So as I think I've said before in this podcast, if you force me uh, to tell you what I think the most likely thing for emissions to do was going to be before COVID, I would say that I would kind of expect them to plateau now and stay more or less the same for a few years. And this is happening because decarbonisation efforts are offset by continued economic growth. And this plateau is driven by a simple dynamic, really, where decarbonisation efforts uh, are offset by continued economic growth. In other words, to think about that Kaya-type decomposition, CO2 per GDP would be falling while GDP is rising. And this dynamic can go on for quite a while. Indeed, this is basically something like what has happened since 2010, and these trends have historically been quite slow to change. So every year since 2010, we've seen CO2 per GDP to decline by a few percent or so, driven by energy efficiency, clean energy in some cases, and less energy-intensive economies more broadly. But GDP has increased by 2 to 3% globally, which has basically meant that in every year since 2010, with the exception of the pandemic, uh, emissions have risen. So it wouldn't surprise me if emissions in 2030 were basically the same as they were in 2019, albeit with some countries seeing a fall in emissions during that time and others seeing a rise. Obviously, this would mean that Paris is pretty doomed. The stringent 1.5 degrees Celsius target requires rapid cuts in emissions over the next decade, and some negative emissions too. But actually, this plateau is not as bad as the rapidly increasing emissions that you would see in scenarios like RCP 8.5, where emissions continue to rise rapidly right the way up till the end of the century. But of course, it's not good enough for Paris, and therefore it's not good enough to save us from some of these nasty impacts of climate change that start showing up at higher and higher temperatures. Indeed, Peter says that emissions reductions similar to what occurred in 2020 during the pandemic would need to start happening every year but without lockdowns for most 1.5 degrees Celsius to 2 degrees Celsius pathways. And we're really a long way off action on that scale taking place. So that would have been my expectation beforehand. With COVID, everything is thrown up in the air a little bit. 
It's not clear whether a green recovery could be viable or how long-term changes to society and politics and policy might be. This is only a very early indicator and perhaps a partially expected one. And we're certainly not in the post-pandemic world yet. You know, there will be behaviour changes that are entailed by uh, what we've all been through in terms of the pandemic as well. But there will also be government policy changes and, you know, potentially very big government interventions, um, which could, you know, set the course of how various different societies and energy systems are going to evolve over the next five, ten years. So I think the option is still open for a much cleaner and greener path than the one we're taking. But it's certainly not clear that this is happening, and there's still a possibility that the green recovery doesn't materialise, which would represent a massive wasted opportunity in the spirit of not letting a good crisis go to waste. And we saw this after the uh, financial crisis in 2008-9 as well, that actually that was the one year um, in the rebound from that, where because of how various economies tried to stimulate their activities, um, they had a focus on quote-unquote shovel-ready stuff that actually was quite polluting um, as as infrastructure stimulus projects to try and sort of boost themselves out of depression. Uh, and that was the one year where CO2 per GDP didn't decline, but GDP spiked quite a lot. And so you had quite a big increase in emissions immediately after that crisis um, because green solutions weren't really prioritised. I think this time the politics and the political climate and also the state of the readiness of those solutions is different, particularly when it comes to renewable energy. Um, and I think that is going to mean that that's less likely to happen now. Um, but, you know, the countries differ still. And we have to remember that the whole world is not made up of the US and Europe where climate policy is starting to get more of a look in. So, you know, it's important to remember that too. There are a few more points then that I wanted to make on the climate front from stories that came up lately. And one was a pretty interesting... Uh, almost a slip of the tongue, I guess you might say, um, although it may be quite revealing, from the former governor of the Bank of England, Mark Carney. So he now works at one of these unbelievably huge asset management firms, uh, Brookfield Asset Management, which manages something like $600 billion worth of assets. I mean, that sounds like a lot, but actually there's the firms like BlackRock and Vanguard and stuff that are even bigger than that. But this is a pretty, a pretty big one. And Carney is quite important in the financial sector, to say the least. And he's also been one of the voices in the finance industry that is very vocal about climate change. If you just took Brookfield's renewables portfolio by itself, it would be one of the largest en energy companies in the world if it was standing alone as a company. And Carney has served as the chairman of the Financial Stability Board. He launched the Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosures, which is now going to be a new benchmark for companies and financiers to assess the climate risks in the stuff that they're buying, both in terms of how they'll be impacted by climate change and also in terms of how much CO2 they're emitting and how subject they are to the carbon bubble when we get out of all of these fossil fuels and uh, polluting assets. So of course we welcome the fact that someone who is prominent in finance seems to have an interest in this, but that is why his recent remarks were met with a few raised eyebrows. Now he claimed that his company Brookfield was a net zero company. Now, we've talked about net zero before, and Patreon subscribers who've listened to our series on negative emissions, which is being put up there at the moment, and we'll make it onto the free feed eventually. They'll know that I've talked about the negative emissions component of net side of net zero at length in those episodes. But basically, net zero, as in the Paris Agreement, has to mean that for every tonne of CO2 your operations emit, you must be removing a tonne of CO2 from the atmosphere elsewhere. Otherwise, it's not net zero. That's pretty simple. That's an accounting identity of, you know, one minus one equals zero. But of course, then there become a lot of concerns and a lot of controversies about what you count 
as the emissions that are responsible for your activities, right? I mean, do you include the emissions from the central scope of just the things that you're doing? So if you drive around a car, those are your emissions? Or do you include, for example, the emissions that come from the manufacturing of that car? Or do you include the emissions that come from, I don't know, the the uh, the flying in of parts to repair that car that some other company does? And so it becomes a lot more difficult to really define uh, what net zero is, um, whether it's the direct and smallest sort of measurement of it, which is the direct electricity and energy and fossil fuel consumption from your activities, or whether you have to include some fraction of everything else that's going on as well. Uh, whether you have to include you know, the, the things that wouldn't be happening if you weren't doing your economic activity at all as part of your emissions. And that can be quite tricky to calculate. And of course, while there are not proper standards and definitions for how this works, uh, there are going to be problems there. And that's just on the side of the emissions that you're adding to the equation. The emissions that you're taking away, again, we've talked about at length in the negative emissions episodes, the accounting there is going to be very difficult. If you've planted a tree, you know, how do you account for the amount of emissions that that takes out of the system? You know, if you have paid for offsets, um, how sure can you be that their numbers that they're using are correct? All that sort of thing. Um, And... It's really going to be setting these standards and having rigorous enforcement of these standards that is going to be such an important process for net zero to actually work um, over the next few years. As more and more uh, companies and countries make their net zero pledges, um, the concern is that you know companies and countries are going to choose definitions of what net zero means, which mean that they effectively can declare victory without actually having gone through the hard process of cancelling out all of the emissions that they're responsible for and reducing their emissions as much as possible. And so it might seem like uh, a ridiculously technical point to pick up on Mark Carney where his definition of net zero is wrong. And it might seem like an academic thing, but it really isn't because it's very much the difference between net zero being an actual thing where we actually cancel out carbon emissions and companies are actually capable of you know, declaring that they've done their bit on climate change versus just greenwashing, you know, versus just people who uh, choose the easiest possible definition and target and then fulfill it or claim they're fulfilling it. And in actuality, the physical reality on the ground is that climate change is continuing to get worse. So given that Carney is supposed to be a leader on this stuff, we were all a bit surprised to learn that he was claiming that Brookfield had achieved net zero already. But then you see what his definition of net zero is. So here's a quote from Bloomberg on this. So Carney said, Brookfield is in a position today where we are at net zero. The reason we're at net zero is that we have this enormous renewables business, he added, noting all of the avoided emissions that come from that had compensated for the planet warming toll of other investments. So I'm sure the accountants amongst you here, you can see the sleight of hand here, right? It seems like his claim that they are net zero is based on the idea that the renewables business is avoiding emissions that might occur elsewhere. But he's counting these avoided hypothetical emissions as negative emissions, which he can then subtract from the rest of what the business is doing. So, you know, if you're invested in one coal plant and 10 renewables power plants, and you're saying that the renewables power plants have displaced other coal plants elsewhere, then you can just cancel out your coal plant's emissions from that. But that's obviously not what a sensible definition of net zero could possibly mean. Because if you look at the reality of what that's doing, 
you have all of the emissions associated with the coal plant, and you also have all of the emissions associated with the operations of the renewables plants, which will be a lot less, but will be non-zero. And so the net impact of your activities is to push stuff into the atmosphere. You can't say you're net zero just comparing yourself to some hypothetical baseline. Um, if, if his calculation is correct, his business is net zero compared to some hypothetical alternative world where nothing he was invested in existed at all, and all of that energy was powered by coal instead. So, you know, I had a go at trying to come up with some analogies for this. I'm sure you will see the, the, the flaw here in the accounting, but it's a little bit like, let's say you find a murderer who's about to kill two people. You steal the murderer's gun, you kill the murderer, and then also one of their intended victims. You can now say that you're at net zero murders. Without you, two people would be dead. With your actions, two people are dead, and one of them is a murderer. So you're at net zero murders. That is definitely one way of looking at it, and I guess you could argue it's sort of an improvement, but we would prefer defining net zero murders as maybe bringing someone back to life for each person you kill, or indeed not killing anyone at all. And this is, you know, this is problematic because people like me believe that negative emissions, unfortunately, at this stage, are going to have to have a role in dealing with climate change, that there will be uh, certain emissions embedded in the operations of systems where it will be easier to remove CO2 from the atmosphere uh, than it will be to actually stop emitting it from this particular process. I don't think there are many processes to which that applies, but if you look at something like aviation, for example, that's an obvious example of where the solutions to decarbonize it are probably going to be a lot more difficult for the next few decades than simply removing CO2 from the atmosphere by some other process. But the critics of net zero who say that we should be talking about absolute zero instead they have said that a big part of the problem is that it opens its way up to creative accounting just like this, where you overestimate the amount of CO2 you've offset or removed, or you measure up against some imagined baseline of what might have happened without you, and then you make inflated claims, and the net part is doing a lot of work, and you're not actually reducing your impact by that much. And it's especially galling given that while Brookfield does own a massive renewables business, they also own fossil fuels. Unearthed Greenpeace's investigative platform have identified several fossil fuel projects where Brookfield is a major shareholder. The asset manager recently made moves to buy billions of dollars of gas and oil infrastructure in Canada, India and the Middle East. There's an investment in an Australian coal terminal operator, and they've pursued a stake in Saudi Aramco's pipelines for oil as well. So, you know, this is not a 100% clean company. And just saying that you've invested in renewables elsewhere doesn't really mean that you can claim that you are. But the concern here is, here's a guy who's very influential in climate finance and finance more generally. We know that getting the financial sector on side with climate change is going to be a huge deal. We're starting to see that happen. We're starting to see these things going on. We're starting to see divestment and shifting of funding away from polluting projects and towards those which can help to reduce emissions. And we will need all of the you know expertise and ability that, that these companies have and the influence that they have in society and how resources are allocated to be involved in monitoring and scrutinising and making sure that companies which say they're carbon neutral or hitting net zero genuinely are doing so. And many people are hoping that forcing companies to disclose whether they're net zero or not and what assets they have that are tied up in fossil fuels will help investors to shift uh, their money towards less polluting projects. So, okay, this is, you know, a market-based solution to climate change. Uh, You can argue about how realistic it's going to be, but it's certainly not going to work if you have these dodgy definitions floating around. And the fact that the guy who's something of a champion of these things seems to have somewhat of a loose definition of what net zero really means is worrying, I would say. 
So in fairness to Carney, he did now recognise, uh, after having said that, that avoiding hypothetical emissions is not the same as negative emissions. But his company is still invested in fossil fuel infrastructure that will, at least according to him, be worthless in a few decades under the Paris Agreement, which makes you wonder what they're doing. And people are going to have to watch these claims, uh, particularly net zero claims, like Hawks in the future, because I think really we're at the stage now where the political mainstream, especially in uh, the, the U- US and uh, Europe and, and lots of other countries, China as well, is now all for climate action of some amount. That's what the leaders are saying. That's what the politicians are promising. And we're hearing a lot more about it from corporations as well. But the reality is that for a lot of companies and even for a lot of governments, it might be cheaper and easier to say that you're all in favour of climate action and hire PR people and creative carbon accountants and engage in a few small pilot projects to demonstrate that than it is to actually voluntarily engage in actions that are commensurate to the scale of the challenge that you've signed up to, you know? The struggle now is not really against deniers to the extent that it was a few years ago, but now it's against greenwashers who talk a good game but then don't back up their words with real actions. So our job as people who care about this sort of thing is to call out people who've made promises and call out when they're saying one thing and doing another and make the case for these proper definitions, binding targets and regulations on everyone rather than voluntary schemes that they can then kind of weasel out of one way or another with some sleight of hand. So there's another major story that I wanted to cover on this front which relates to projects here in the UK. And I think it's an interesting story because... It just backs up some of what we've previously said on the show. So we've talked about how difficult reducing emissions can be because of inertia in the system. It's not just a matter of demanding that people switch to clean sources of power or clean ways of heating their homes or electric cars. Indeed, it's not just a matter of putting incentives in place to make sure that that happens more quickly. You need the infrastructure there. You need people who are trained to build the green infrastructure, who can install and maintain it. You could ban fossil fuel cars tomorrow, but if you don't have enough electric vehicles being produced, it's going to cause chaos. Homeowners have to decide that their boiler needs replacing when it dies after 10 years, right in the middle of a busy work week. If the solutions aren't available for them to get hold of, if it's going to be more difficult, and if the incumbents are still there and powerful in terms of the gas-fired boilers, you know, they're going to get that gas-fired boiler, and that's going to lock in another 10 years of emissions, or it's going to mean that you need to pay someone even more to retire something halfway through its life. You know, you'll have stranded assets there. And you need people who can build this green infrastructure, who can install and maintain it. And you need to train them to do that, you know, so that all of this stuff has time lags associated with it, which are unavoidable. You know, you you can't do any, you can't magic up uh, trained engineers. You can't magic up companies that are doing this stuff and producing these things. Uh, at large scale, and you can't force people to instantaneously switch things that usually decisions are made on much longer time horizons, right? So because of this inertia in these systems, scaling up can't happen instantaneously, even if you now have all the political goodwill in the world to really make this work, and you put money behind it and all this sort of thing because of this inertia. And so that's a point that we've made on previous episodes, but this brings us to the Green Homes Grant in the UK. So the Green Homes Grant was really, it was a good concept, I think. Um, The government would provide £2 billion in funding to help homeowners improve energy efficiency in their homes and finally kickstart the industry for green heating 
uh, like making heat pumps in place of gas-fired boilers and so on. And uh, with this grant, they would give you £5,000 towards a project and 10000 if you were a low-income household too. So, you know, that's good stuff. That's It's a perfectly workable, decent policy to try and kickstart some of the adoption of this stuff and support these industries to grow bigger. Just some background here, because I know we have an international audience. We have a conservative uh, right-wing government in the UK at the moment who just got elected in 2019. Now, when parties run for office in the UK, they publish a manifesto full of promises about what they will do if they get elected. These promises vary in nature. Uh, Sometimes the major headline promises can then become political issues once the government is elected, like if you've promised to build a certain number of hospitals and you don't do it, or if there's a high-profile failure to fulfil a promise, it can be a major concern and very damaging for a political party. Of course, you can see how seriously they take each promise by how likely it is to be fulfilled during the five years or whatever that they have in office. According to the Institute for Government, who are an independent think tank who look at the government and and uh, politics and so on, they reckon around 60% of these pledges have been met in recent years. So, you know, they're not all overblown promises that don't get fulfilled, um, but particularly in recent years where we've had a lot of uh, hung parliaments and uh, not, you know, completely uh, stable (laughs) government in the UK, I guess you could say, uh, and problems to deal with, there have been fewer of these promises that have been met. But one of the Conservative promises in their manifesto was £9.2 billion towards energy efficiency improvements over the next five years. There were rumours that they were going to get rid of this to save money after the COVID-19 pandemic, which was not really in the spirit of the green recovery. We may have talked about it on a different episode where the rumours were going around that they didn't want to spend on energy efficiency because they wanted to focus on snazzy new projects like nuclear fusion instead. And uh, I talked about how I didn't think that was a good idea and and wrote to my Member of Parliament about it even. But uh, shortly after that controversy, this Green Homes Grant was rolled out with this £2 billion of funding. Half a billion of that was given to local authorities to spend. Uh, so I guess that's like the equivalent of regional governments here in the UK. But then it quickly became clear that the 1.5 billion that was going to households, there were problems with it. People were only given six months to register for the scheme, find an appropriate trader to install their improvement, and have all the works completed. Homeowners were reporting huge waiting lists for the small number of operators who could install heat pumps and clean heating alternatives, and uh, they needed to be licensed by this regulated trustmark group who would license these installers. But the problem for this, for the trader's perspective, is you need to go through a whole complicated licensing procedure. Uh, you need to get them to uh, confirm that you're a Trustmark installer to install some of this new stuff. And you only have six months to do that in the middle of a pandemic, uh, in the middle of the aftermath of uh, Brexit, which has caused a lot of extra paperwork for traders who have to import things and export things as well. So in the midst of all this, there's this whole additional scheme that you have to sign up for. And you know that the support that is going to create demand for that will be gone in a few months. Only a few traders actually qualified for the scheme initially, and that scheme, you know, it ends in March 2021, uh, when I'm recording this now. So even companies who could have qualified for it didn't have much incentive to go through the effort of doing so, given that probably by the time they'd got this qualification, uh, the funding would not be available anymore. And, you know, it's very difficult. Why bother to get yourself geared up for a market that might be gone by next year? As you can imagine with any of these schemes, you know, if there's even an element of confusing or bureaucratic or complicated to apply for it, homeowners might just give up and the traders we rely on to install it might not bother. 
And there was almost like, I don't know, I don't know whether this is just my perception or not, but there was almost a bit of a sense of embarrassment when launching this. You know, there wasn't a big speech from the Prime Minister or any other minister uh, that was on TV that was describing this. There weren't any programs explaining the different types of things that you could do. You know, if we're talking about a real proper net zero effort in the next 30 years, and we're talking about people are using metaphors like wartime mobilization or industrial revolutions or so on, you think they would put a little bit more effort into actually advertising that this stuff was available. But um, unfortunately, you know, the, the flaws with this grant means that it's been a bit of a fiasco, to be honest. Um, they had this $1.5 billion that was allocated to householders, but just $71 million of that has been spent. So obviously way less than, than 10%, less than 5% even. They're going to extend £320 million of funding for that to next year, um, for the next financial year, but they're withdrawing the rest of the funding, which means that over a billion in the initially announced funding is just being withdrawn. The argument given was that the grant was only ever supposed to be a short-term stimulus to deal with the economic impact of COVID. But this is nonsensical on a number of different levels, right? I mean, number one, the economic impact of COVID is still very much here. In the UK, we're still in lockdown now. We're in lockdown number three. Uh, and also, given the government's ambition for net zero by 2050, how can you say that it's going to be a short-term stimulus to deal with the economic impact of COVID? You're going to need to support people to make these green improvements to their homes and energy efficiency improvements and changing their heating you know, you'll need support that's continuously there for that to roll out until it's done. Do you know what I mean? There are millions of households and we need to replace the heating system for pretty much every single one by 2050 to something that can be carbon neutral. Even if the full grant had been kept in place, it was estimated that it might help 600,000 homes, which is only a small fraction of the total number in the UK. And so far, only 20,000 have got support. So, you know, I just think that this is this idea of having it as a short-term project, is very mismatched to the nature of climate change and the nature of what you have to do to get a real stimulus in place. And it almost just makes you think that it, it feels a little bit like greenwashing to dangle this $2 billion and then when only $71 million is spent to take it away again. It gets you lots of headlines about being green and having a green recovery, but it's not actually following through with sustained support in this case. And I think looking at this project, you know, obviously the story is still evolving. It may be that they change this under pressure from campaigners, but there are two sort of sets of problems here, really. There are problems that are pretty unique to the way this is being done, but there's also wider problems here. I have to say, if you're promising to spend 10 billion in five years, why on earth would you slash a billion in funding for the next year? Doesn't make any sense to me. The justification to end the program seems pretty flimsy. Um, we're starting to see aspects of the austerity narrative coming back into UK politics now. Uh, we've seen, for example, the uh, low pay rise to nurses of 1%, which has been, they've said, you know, we don't have the money to pay for anything more, uh, which, you know, our, our friends who subscribe to MMT would always say, when people tell you that they don't have the money to pay for something as a government, uh, they obviously mean that they're not willing to prioritise it because... We know that the constraint on what they can spend is, is inflation and not some magic pot of money somewhere. It sort of amazes me that you can get away with this narrative when we've seen uh, the national uh, deficit in increase by so much in the last year to respond to COVID. We can clearly see that <laughs> there is the capacity to pay for lots of things um, in the currency generated by the government. Um, and 
it's sort of a magically appearing and disappearing constraint on the government's ability to spend, which is always interesting. But in this particular case, you know, you can justify the spending because, well, it needs to happen anyway, supports the growth of a new industry, supports householders directly uh, to get things done, supports people to be employed, you know. I mean, it, it, it's a stimulus which I'm sure the economists would tell you generates a lot of economic value um, for the amount of money that you're putting in, and therefore it's a good investment. But um, in this particular case, you know, there were specific flaws with it, this very short time span and the difficulty companies had in getting accreditation to carry out the work, which seems like maybe there wasn't enough uh, joined up policymaking between the companies who could do this stuff on the ground and the Green Homes Grant there. You know, I mean, as I say, you can't just put a big pot of money in place um, and then put a whole bunch of different conditions onto it, um, which don't really match up to what people are capable of dealing with. Um, And we've seen examples in the past of where prize funds of the sort have been made available but then actually because of you know the the limitations in how they can be uh, distributed or administered they end up being quietly withdrawn later on uh, because they don't there's no one who can actually fulfill that that prize and you know it's uh it's kind of like putting a carrot on the end of the stick is not enough you sort of need to build the bridges for people to get across the uh, uh, get across the perilous valley of death for these technology developments and for this broader industrial development as well. So it's not really holistic enough, I would say. Um, And more broadly, the short-term thing is a big problem because if you're trying to develop an industry in the long term, they obviously need that certainty that the support will continue to be there. And we have seen this work well for green policies in the UK in the past with the contract for different subsidies for renewable electricity generation, which have been there on a sort of consistent rolling basis and the long-term certainty that these these uh, support would continue to be in place was what helped the cost of these uh, renewable projects in the UK to to plummet uh, to the extent that we have more solar panels in the UK than the whole continent of Africa, which is an unbelievable statistic that I that I keep reflecting on. Um, if if you wanted to know how the world's resources get allocated in a strange way, that's a good example. But um, you know, on on the solar panel subject. We saw that the abrupt cancellation of the feed-in tariff policy for solar PV, which people were installing on their rooftops, actually killed that industry for a few years as well. So, you know, there's no excuse here to say that you can think it's good policymaking to have something that's such a short-term uh, impact and, and that is just withdrawn rapidly without warning. And that is certainly the case with this $1 billion in funding that's now been taken away again. Um, So there are definitely specific problems with how this scheme was run, administered, and now withdrawn. And, you know, people who do this policy analysis are going to enjoy dissecting exactly what went wrong here and how it could be fixed. And all this stuff is exactly the kind of nitty-gritty you have to get into when you're talking about how we really can rapidly change these major industries and aspects of the way we live our lives. In this case, you know, how we heat our homes. But more broadly, I think it shows that even getting these climate policies right is extremely difficult. It takes more than good intentions or even just announcing the big pot of money to shift the market towards your good intentions. And this is all because of inertia in the system, which in this case just meant that it couldn't scale up in time. There weren't enough people available who could install this renewable heating. And that's what you get from a lack of sort of thorough planning of how this is going to work. So you need to have a joined up plan of how it's going to work. You've got to work with the industries that you expect to deliver these things, understand the challenges they face, try and make it as easy for them as possible. You've got to ensure that there's a continuity right from the process of training the person who's going to do this to getting it into someone's household. And I think that requires a lot more 
uh, capacity than we've built up at the moment. And in some ways, it's an exciting thing because, you know, I mean, we talk all the time about how there's an awful lot of work to be done and there are a lot of people who might be unemployed now. So it seems like there's a way to marry those two things up. But you have to ensure that the continuity is there so that people will start now planning for and moving towards this future where we genuinely are carbon neutral. And it's not just some distant 2050 date, but there's actual concrete steps and and targets and plans of how to get there. And that is going to be the hardest bit beyond just declaring that we're going to do it. And uh, I think that this there's a lot of lessons to be learned from how this policy has been rolled out. And hopefully those lessons will be learned and can be learned by others and we can have more successful approaches in the future. But, you know, this stuff is hard. So I'm really making two points here. The first is that this is indicative that climate policy and the energy transition is not as easy to get right in reality as it is in our models. There's plenty of inertia in these systems that includes the political system, the decisions that individuals have to make, the ways that industries can adapt and function. And that doesn't just vanish even if you start taking policy actions. And secondly, of course, to say it's very disappointing that this particular policy seems to be abandoned now. And I hope that something is going to be done about that. And uh, I'm sure we'll all be making noises to that effect. The concern and the worry is that, like in the case with the greenwashing and the companies that we talked about earlier, is that the right noises will be made and the uh, PR coup from doing that will be achieved. And then quietly behind the scenes, the action that actually takes place will just be insufficient. So I realise that these editions of thermonuclear takes, like other editions of our news coverage, have been a little bit bleak, and I do apologise for that. But in some ways, maybe a good way of thinking about it is that when problems with the way things are are so glaring, there's actually quite a lot of room for improvement. We know that these things are eminently possible. We can have a political and economic system that acts properly to solve climate change and improve the quality of life for people in the world at the same time. We can have an economy that's less geared towards rampant speculation on dubious faux technology stocks and actually helps divert money towards these real-world problems that need to be solved. Where we see this wasted potential, we have to remember that there's still potential. This is a world that is boundless with potential. I think the last few years have made us all reassess, maybe quite substantially, the way we view these things. I know that it's done so for me. And as an individual as well as a society, the first and most necessary step is to acknowledge and identify what the problems are. You know, a a listener put it very well uh, on the Patreon the other day. Disillusionment is tricky, but it's better than illusionment. In future episodes, I'm hoping to do some more book reviews of ideas that people have proposed specifically on the economic front, which could provide more realistic but optimistic imaginings of the future. I hope you'll join me and look forward to these things. But just before we go, to leaven things up, I want to drop in a few good news stories. The first is some good news that has come out of the UK. As we talked about, the current government has committed to net zero by 2050. They're now even more interested in climate change as a means of cooperation internationally. In light of the strong demand of citizens at home to act on climate, the election of Biden in the US, and the fact that the UK is hosting the COP26 climate change conference in Glasgow later this year. But these outward-facing green credentials from the government have been substantially undermined by a decision to open a new coal mine in Cumbria, a project that would add millions of tonnes of CO2 emissions to the atmosphere over the course of its life. So campaigners, scientists, activists, policymakers and so on have pointed out the absurdity of saying that you're committed to net zero and yet continuing to allow permits for more fossil fuels to be extracted, at a time when your best advice is that all fossil fuel infrastructure needs to be retired as soon as feasibly possible and replaced with clean alternatives. Quite simply, whether we use the coal here or sell it abroad, we can't be opening new mines for the dirtiest fossil fuel there is and claim to have these brilliant green credentials. And this project was certainly sticking out like an egregious sore thumb. 
And listeners will remember Professor Rebecca Willis, who we interviewed recently about the democratic challenge of climate change, and she's written extensively about this mine for several years now, alongside many others. And she's been interviewed on the TV and the radio constantly in recent weeks, as the political pressure around this coal mine project in Cumbria has continued to build. As she rightly points out, you have to have this joined-up strategy in your democracy to challenge and tackle climate change. You know, If you're genuinely serious about getting to net zero emissions, you can't just invest in some flagship green projects and call it a day, as uh, perhaps Mark Carney wanted to do. You have to have detailed plans for every sector, every region of the country that makes sense, that add up, so that you can't have rogue decisions like this Cumbrian coal mine going ahead as part of that. Well, the good news for the campaigners, and I congratulate Professor Willis and everyone else who was involved in lobbying on this issue, is that the coal mine permit has been suspended pending an inquiry. So I sincerely hope that this isn't just an exercise in kicking the can down the road until the political heat is off, but I think the point that's made here is a really good one. So governments in the UK, the US, the EU, China, in many other countries, have now made commitments to given climate policies and net zero targets, but we can still hold their feet to the fire. Ask them to explain how these carbon-intensive projects they're investing in can possibly be compatible with what they've said they will do. Shine a light on hypocrisies and inconsistencies like this project where they show up. And putting on that pressure can make a difference. Indeed, in this case, it may well have done. So congratulations to everyone involved. The second light piece of news I want to talk about is a pretty incredible report from Bloomberg New Energy Foundation. They study energy trends and really that's kind of the gold standard in people who study these installations and so on. And uh, they had news on 2020. So in 2020, despite the pandemic, despite everything, we saw a world record for capacity installations in solar and wind. 239 gigawatts of new capacity in solar and wind was added in 2020, compared to 179 gigawatts the years before. And the rate at which this capacity addition is increasing is accelerating over time. It's an exponential graph, basically. So for once, there's a good exponential graph to talk about, and that is the uh, capacity installation of renewables. And we know that we're going to need all the renewables we can get in this process, and they're taking off now like never before. Governments, of course, should capitalise on these trends rapidly and invest like crazy in this clean tech while it's hot, while people are interested, while the financial world is seeing an opportunity here and waking up to the fact that the energy transition is coming, whether we like it or not. This is happening, and we can make it happen even faster in a way that helps build a fairer, cleaner and better world for everyone involved. Thank you for listening to these episodes of Thermonuclear Takes, where I have rambled about news stories that interest me. It'll probably be a while before the next set, but thank you if you enjoy listening to these. Please let me know. There are many ways to get in touch with us. You can go to the website at physicspodcast.com. There you'll find the contact form, any comments, questions, concerns, things you'd like to hear me cover, things you'd like to hear me cover less. You can send me emails there. I try and respond to all the ones I get, and it's always really nice to hear from you. You will also find on the About page there that we now have not only the episode guide, which tells you all of the subjects we've covered in the past and all of the people we've interviewed in the past as well, with links for your friends and family who may be interested in listening to this show. We now have transcripts. Links to individual transcripts are there as well. So go and check out those transcripts if you'd like to read some of the things that I've written. If there's a transcript that's missing that you would like to have, let me know and I'll try to get hold of it. I've put up all the ones that I could find on my hard drive, but I know there's some others lingering out there on various different... Uh, bits of the internet ether that I can get hold of. There are other ways to support the show as well. We are on Patreon. You may well be listening to this on Patreon early if you're one of the people who has subscribed there. If so, thank you very, very much. The way that that works is you subscribe for a nominal fee per uh, bonus episode. It could end up being as little as $1 a month, uh, depending on how you subscribe to it. And you'll get access to unique bonus episodes which are only available there, including the improvisational ones I've started to do where I review some books that I've been reading recently and sort of ramble in even more 
uh, unscripted fashion than I've done in these thermonucleotex episodes. So if that sounds like the kind of thing you might be interested in, you can get hold of that there. And you can also get hold of dozens of episodes before they release on the main feed. The whole Cosmology series, the whole Negative Emission series are all there. So if you need to get your fix, that is the place to go. And thank you to everyone who has done that in advance. But of course, the best way to support us is to tell other people about the show. Uh, We rely mostly on word of mouth to get the word out about this show. Uh, We can't afford the massive advertising budgets, which other shows can. Um, So I really do appreciate if anything that you're listening to is at all worthwhile that you tell other people who may be interested in some of the topics we've covered to check out the show as well. Until next time then, please do take care.